Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris Papa. I'm alone right here. I'll just me and Julio. Say hi, Julio. Julio doesn't talk. Oh, there he goes. Uh, we're excited to launch the Impact Real Estate Podcast Summer Series, where we bring back some of our favorite interviews from the previous iteration of this podcast. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be reintroducing you to some of the titans of our industry with the hope that their stories will continue to impact all of you. As always, any love you can send the podcast via like, share, comment, or review across iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or the jacksonlucas.com website is always appreciated. For now, thanks for tuning in and have a great summer. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Mike Novogratik. Mike is the managing partner at Novogratik and Company. How are you doing, Michael? I am doing great, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good. I've, uh, it's good to be here. I'm in San Mateo. You said you're over in the East Bay, both Bay Area guys, um, adjusting to uh, kind of another shutdown or something, right? How's it going over in the East Bay? Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the same. It's it's been a it's been a long time. <laughs> uh, this this pandemic's been a challenge, and it has its uh, highs and lows. But I'll look forward to the vaccine getting widely distributed, to where we can get back into the office. Well, you are Mike Novogratik, and you are the uh, namesake of Novogratik and Company, which is uh, it's known you know largely for being I feel the most the largest. Uh, accounting firm for affordable housing. But what else do you guys do? Or, or just tell us about uh, Novogratik and Company, please. Yeah, I'd be uh, happy to. So yeah, Novogratik and Company, we were formed back in 1989. Uh, and as a Bay Area guy, I'm not sure if you were in the Bay Area at the time. I know you're, I think you're from the East Coast. Yeah, but Georgia October 17th, right birth. we were formed on October 17th, 1989, which is the day of the San Francisco earthquake. Oh, wow. <laughs> is that a coincidence so, yes exactly exactly <laughs> the earth shook uh, the year we started business or the day we started business so we uh, we were formed back in 1989 and we've always focused on affordable housing and early we were also focused on historic preservation uh, so mm -hmm. both the low income housing tax credit and, and the historic tax credit and then as the firm has grown over the years we've expanded into renewable energy so we have a large renewable energy tax credit practice we also, with the new market tax credit, was created uh, back in 2000. So we do a lot of work in community development and the new market tax credit. And then more recently, we've been very active with opportunity zones. So you can think of us as low-income housing tax credits, as long with private activity bonds, basically rental bonds to finance affordable housing. Uh, you can think of us as historic tax credits, renewable energy area. And then beyond that, we work with a lot of other areas that with those companies that are involved with respect to these incentives. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I work heavily with uh, a lot of affordable housing uh, companies as my clients and I see, so I follow a lot of things on LinkedIn and newsletters and, and uh, all that stuff. And your, your guys' names over all of it, you have your own conferences and like, you're like, you're like the guy in the space, right? I mean, how, how did, how did you, why did you spe or, or, um, specialize in that area and how, how did you grow that out? Right. No, it, uh, I, started in public accounting at Arthur Anderson and Company and then left in 89. And I was 
wanting to work in an area that was going to create a lot of value for those that I serve uh, and really create a lot of community good. So mm -hmm. we have an informal model at Novogratic uh, that we can do well by doing good. Uh, so working with affordable housing, and I was also interested in tax and accounting, mm -hmm. tax and accounting and affordable housing all kind of work together. And the long housing tax credit was actually created in 1986. So mm -hmm. it was a new incentive. So it was a great opportunity for a young guy to go out and you know learn the incentive and help real estate developers build uh, and renovate affordable housing and make it available for long-term use to local individuals. So it was very rewarding at a very personal level. So that's how yeah. we ended up getting involved in that area. Now, my understanding, I'm not a, you know, I'm a recruiter. I'm not a investor in affordable housing, but there is a lot of different compliance issues and, and tax issues. And like how, how, what's the biggest difference, I guess, between like if you're buying a market rate property and then an affordable housing property and the different accounting and tax issues involved. Right. So the, the affordable housing, when you look at the, the tax incentive affordable housing, which is basically going to be housing finance through raising equity from low income housing tax credits or right. equity from low income housing tax credits, along with debt from private activity bonds or taxes and bonds, uh, th these properties are really driven by obviously the tax credits, the tax benefits. So you end yes. up having to know that you have the awards needed to claim the tax credits and that you're complying with the tax credits during construction and placement service, as well as over the following 15 year compliance period. And then the properties actually stay affordable even beyond that. And that's one of the ways in which we've grown as a firm is the developers want to work with accounting firms of a lot of knowledge about these incentives and have knowledge throughout the organization, not just the partner knows, but since we focus <laughs> in this area, we have it at all levels uh, of the organization. So clients coming to us, we may not know the answer to a question in this area, but there's a high, high, high probability we've thought about it and have an opinion as to yeah. how to address the issue. So that is what kind of led us, not just developers, investors as well. Investors want to know that the accounting firm involved has experience in this area. Lenders want to know, property managers want to know, everybody wants to know that the accounting firm is really knowledgeable. So that's really led to the growth of the firm. Do you feel that affordable housing investors and developers have to rely upon their tax and accounting specialists like heavier, heavier, more heavily than, you know, market rate investors? Uh, they absolutely do. They absolutely do in large measure because the rules do change uh, yeah. every year. And that's one of the ways you mentioned that we put on conferences. Some people get first get to know us through the conferences and then they didn't have to learn that we're actually an accounting firm. We're actually, we also yeah. not just accounting firm, we're evaluation firm as well. So we do market studies, appraisals and the like. And a lot of the areas within affordable housing and community development and start preservation, and the like, but folks have come to us through our conferences and the conferences really got started because rules are changing all the time. The states themselves award tax credits and productivity bonds through various competitive processes. So you have to understand how those rules and they're constantly changing. And so there's 50 states as well as the possessions. So all those rules are changing, but also back in Washington, DC, you know, new legislation is always being introduced. The legislation is periodically passing and clients need to understand how those rules affect not only what they want to do in the future, but what they already own. And then, of course, there's regulatory issues that are constantly changing in Washington, D.C., and clients need to be very close to that. And that's something that we follow very closely so clients can come to us 
to get updated and know that we're staying on top of it. Yeah, we'll we'll get back to that a little bit later with the new new election or recent recent election. Um, but I wanted to talk. I mean, you might not know this, but you're kind of like a hero of mine because I have an, a recruiting firm, but I'm also I want to be put on conferences and grow the recruiting firm and be like known as the guy for real estate and affordable housing recruiting. And you're the guy who's known for you know affordable housing uh, valuation and, and accounting and tax. How did you build out your company and build out your brand? It was definitely the power of compounding. So we basically started back in 89. There was just uh, two of us uh, and a receptionist. And we just, <laughs> you know, we, we, we kind of went out there and said we knew we weren't going to be known for being the largest firm uh, in the country, obviously. And we just created niches. So we started off with the niches, you know, low income tax credit and the historic tax credit. Uh, and then we published. So we published a lot of articles and the rest. And then we started doing conferences and newsletters and the like and just kept sort of building, uh, if you will, and just growing at maybe, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 percent a year. And just over 30 years later, uh, it's amazing yeah. what if you grow at five or 10 or 15 percent a year where you can be 30 years later. So now that you know, each state's different, they have different regulations. Do you have to have different professionals and like all across the country just to know the different uh, regulations of each state? Yeah, we definitely have, well, we have offices throughout the country. We have you know, roughly 28 offices uh, throughout the country. And, you know, in the, if you're in Cal in the more California offices, you're more likely to be expert in the California rules. And if you're in our Missouri office, you're more likely to be expert in the rules uh, in the state of Missouri. But the, as a as a general matter, though our clients are national, most of our partners have clients that are working nationally. So most partners have expertise in a, in, in several states, and we don't have an office in every state, but we do have expertise in every state. And what have been the biggest changes in the regulations over the last thirty years, from when it was you know the tax credit, the low income housing tax credit was first introduced to to now? You're right. I mean, I would say the the biggest change, and I don't know if I even view it as a change, but when I think about the community of affordable housing with a focus on low-income housing tax credits, because there's also, you know, HUD finance properties, HUD being the Department mm -hmm. of Housing and Urban Development, and there are a number of properties and a number of incentives through the Department of Housing and Urban Development that we also work in. But when I think of the low-income housing tax credit, I would just say back in 1986 when it was created, the first properties were financed in 87. And as you can imagine, there wasn't a lot of guidance <laughs> as to yeah. how the program uh, operated. And then every year, there's a little bit more guidance. So now, 30 years later, we have 30 years of sort of cumulative guidance. And that guidance comes in a wide variety of places. It's statutory changes themselves. It's guidance from the IRS. The IRS releases various rulings and regulations and the like. You end up with court cases interpreting various provisions. So I would just say large parts of the area have gotten to be a little bit more routine. They're much more in depth, if you will, but they're more routine. It's kind of like a home mortgage, say with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. If you ever read the home mortgage document, it's quite lengthy and it's developed over a lot of years. But when you go and you buy your home, all you do is you sign the papers. Yeah. <laughs> you guys spend a lot of time reviewing it. So I would say within the local tax credit community now, a lot of while the transactions are very complex, there's been so much volume that a lot of it's been more regularized. Was there a reason the tax credit was created? Was something going on in 1986 that caused that? 
Yes, there was. 1986 was when the Tax Reform Act passed. That was a, a big effort to simplify the tax code and, and level rates. And for a brief period of time, you had level rates between, say, capital gains and ordinary income and the rest. And as part of the Tax Reform Act of 86, trying to reform the tax code, they took a number of incentives that were there to incentivize the building of affordable housing. And they said, whether rather than having these three or four different incentives that are a little bit disparate, we'll take those incentives and roll them into one. And we'll create mm -hmm. one incentive that's very targeted. And it was targeted in a way that you get more tax credits if you rent more units to low-income families at restricted rents. So it was really, as part of tax reform, consolidating a variety of in incentives that on the margin were helpful, but weren't programmatic, and creating a more dedicated programmatic effort to help increase the supply of affordable rental housing for low-income families across the country. Do you think that it's worked to incentivize more developers to get into this space? It absolutely has. It absolutely has. It's It's been an immense success. It, I mean, it, I think it has greatly exceeded any expectations that were originally you know, put out there for the loan closing cash credit. When it was created, it was initially only funded for three years. It was a trial program oh. to basically huh. see, you know, is this going to work? And by 1989, it was quite obvious that it, it not only would it work, it was working. So then it got <laughs> extended and then went through a series of extensions. And then back in 1993, it was made an indefinite part of the tax code. Have you seen the affordable housing space become more institutionalized because of that? I mean, I know I work with, you know, institutional shops and like more like kind of smaller family offices and they all are in the affordable housing space. But my, I've recognized, or I, I think I, I see a pattern of, of it becoming a little more institutionalized, but I'd like to see what you're, you have a, you have a longer perspective than I do on right. it. Well, there's definitely parts of it that lend themselves, that lends the industry to institutionalization. Uh, and those areas have been institutionalized. The equity investor pool, the equity mm -hmm. investor pool started off as individuals. If you can believe that it was individuals, uh, it was difficult to get corporations to invest. Corporations weren't used to investing in affordable housing and the like. You know, fast forward, you know, 30 years and now the investor community is heavily dominated by corporations and more specifically, a large portion of the investor pool are your major financial institutions because there's some incentives mm -hmm. beyond the tax credits to encourage them to invest in affordable housing. So a lot of the, you know, the, the name banks are all investors in local tax credits. So in that sense, it's very institutional. But on the other end, you think about the individual developments, you know, every state has their own allocation process and the developers have to really be focused on affordable housing and really be focused on applying to the state agency and getting the awards, getting private activity bonds and the like. And as your prior guests uh, have, have noted, uh, if you're going to work in this space, you really have to stay in close contact with the state agencies because you have to know what the state agencies want to incentivize. So now mm -hmm. at that level, I don't think of it as really institutionalized. You have a series of developers that work in one, two, three states. There are only a handful of companies that develop nationally because it's so challenging to get to know the rules in every state. So if I were to, I'm, you know, say I am from New Jersey, but say I'm a developer in New Jersey and I want to develop an affordable housing project in California, would I come to Novogratic prior to trying to get, win that bid and trying to help you guys would help navigate the local laws and, and 
and all that stuff in, in California? Is that kind of how it works? You know, what, what I would suggest to that developer is let's sit down and let's discuss what your expertise is and what type of development do you think you want to develop in California? Uh, developers have their area of expertise and the like, and we could then share with them how California allocates its tax credits and how California allocates its taxes and bonds and affordable residential rental housing. And we can basically say, this is the type of housing and the locations that California is looking to use its awards. And you have to decide as a developer from New Jersey, is that the type of housing that you have a competitive advantage in? So in that mm -hmm. process, we can help advise as to whether or not it was a successful business plan or potential for success. And then to the extent you wanted to go ahead and proceed, then we could help you apply for the tax credits uh, in the state of California, apply for tax and bonds and the rest. Gotcha. And you mentioned some of the banks, how they started getting more into the tax credit world. Is that where like when like city community capital and those type of, of groups within the banks were, were first formed? They weren't really formed for this, but they definitely, this is a large part of what a major banks group that's focused on community reinvestment. This will mm. play a critical part, both on the debt side and the equity investment side. Gotcha. And you also mentioned historic tax credits and opportunity zones. I mean, opportunity zones have been you know, the buzzword over the last couple of years. Can you explain sort of how that works to people who don't really know? Sure. So with uh, historic tax credits, historic tax credits are similar to long-term housing tax credits, and they predate uh, historic. They predate long-term housing tax credits, uh, and historic tax credits are an incentive to renovate an historic building. Historic buildings, if you want to keep the historic character of the building, it is going to cost more than if you don't care about the historic mm -hmm. character. So the historic tax credit is now a twenty percent tax credit that a developer of a historic property can raise tax credit equity to help offset the higher costs of maintaining the historic character of the property. So that's a great incentive for, you know, preserving the heritage of the United States. So that's what that incentive is about. Mm -hmm. And then opportunity zones are all about trying to drive equity investment into distressed communities across the country. And it was created as part of the tax reform bill that the Senate and the House passed uh, sort of the end of the first year of the Trump uh, presidency. Mm. Uh, and it was this is the bill commonly referred to as the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And it basically created this incentive for investors who had capital gains to take those mm. capital gains and rather than go forward and pay tax on them, to take those capital gains and invest in businesses in these distressed communities. And then they basically got to defer paying tax on that gain. They still have to pay tax on the gain, but they get to defer it until the year 2026. So there's a benefit to deferring the tax and investing in that since that tax in these distressed areas. But the real driver of opportunity zones is if you invest in a business in these distressed areas and it has to be equity capital in these areas and you hold that investment for 10 years, then at the end of the 10 years, when you do sell the investment or at the point in time when you sell the investment, you will not have to pay tax on the capital gains. So it's a very significant incentive to invest patient equity capital in distressed communities. When that first came out, that was the buzzword I saw everywhere. Everyone's creating opportunity zone funds and all that kind of stuff. I haven't heard as much the last probably two years. Is that, um, is that still, are people still pretty active in that space? Yes, there are, uh, people are very active in that space and it's 
if you think of the, the amount of capital, we we have an annual, not an annual, we have a periodic survey, sort of a rolling survey uh, mm-hmm. that estimates how much money has been raised uh, for Opportunity Zone investments. And it's sort of a rolling survey, so we know we're just capturing a small subset of the actual investment amount. And our recent, most recent calculations were at exceeded $12 billion that's been wow. invested. And the Council of Economic Advisors actually from the White House actually estimates about $75 billion has already been invested. So there is significant wow. capital being invested in distressed communities through Opportunity Zones. That's great. Um, and now you, you mentioned politics and the effect it has on affordable housing. How much influence does different administrations can they have on, on these different, I guess it's the, the, some, some administrations allocate more tax credits and some are less. Is that kind of how it, the general gist of it? You know, the I would say the general gist of it is the administrations, along with Congress, along with the House and the Senate, they develop the funding levels for spending programs. So they'll, mm-hmm. they'll create the amount of money going to the Department of Housing and Development that will have a real direct impact on affordable housing finance. There's also the tax code side and the tax credits fit within the tax code. And there's either a series of provisions that are uh, indefinite. So the long term tax credit example is an indefinite incentive. So that's an incentive that if the president does nothing and the House and the Senate do nothing, then it just continues on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other tax incentives that are, aren't permanent yet. And so, for example, the new market tax credit is a critical incentive for community development, and it's not yet a permanent part of the tax code. So it's something that has to get extended. So there mm-hmm. you have to rely on the House and the Senate and the president to agree to extending it. And the new market tax credit, for instance, is scheduled to expire at the end of this year. And we're optimistic it'll get at least a short-term extension during this lame duck session of Congress. And then at some point in the future, be made permanent. So that's and then so that's kind of how the, the sort of the lay of the land. But then obviously Congress can choose, along with the president, to provide additional funding and provide additional provisions to help further the development and advancement of affordable housing. So we have a very active group in Washington, D.C. to monitor what's happening both on the regulatory front and on the legislative front and the administrative front to see what we can be doing to help accelerate the availability of resources to build affordable housing and, and rebuild communities. Yeah, I forgot to ask about the new market tax credit. What what Can you explain that to us? Right. The new market tax credit was patterned after the low-income housing tax credit to a certain extent, and it's essentially an incentive to get uh, financial, get investors to invest in community development entities. And then these mm-hmm. community development entities can then use the equity capital that they've raised from investors to help make below market loans to businesses that are operating and serving low income communities. Gotcha. Um, and so, you know, we have a new administration coming in to office here. What are you, what are your, what are you guys telling you from in DC? What's, what are the, what do you predict as far as uh, the effect this administration is going to have on the affordable housing world? Right. I mean, I definitely think that there's a lot of opportunity going into the election. There was definitely a widespread belief that there could be a blue wave where Democrats would control the House, the Senate and the presidency. And right now, the Democrats control the House under the the current Congress that ends at the uh, end of this year. Democrats control the House, Republicans control the Senate, and then obviously Mm -hmm. Republicans control the presidency. 
Now, when you look into next year, we actually don't know if there was a blue wave or not, because we don't know who controls the Senate for next year. We, we know the House will be controlled by Democrats, albeit their margin won't be quite as large as it is now. We know the president will be Joe Biden. We don't know if the Senate's going to be controlled by Republicans or Democrats. It looks like it'll be controlled by Republicans. We don't know. And mm -hmm. the reason why we don't know are there two there are two races in the uh, state of Georgia, the Senate races, where instead of Georgia <laughs> on election night, you have to win by more than 50 percent or else you have to have a runoff. Oh, wow. Okay. And there were yeah. two seats up and usually there aren't two Senate seats up, but one of the senators had uh, reti had retired or resigned his position and there was an appointed senator. So that this, the appointed senator had to, had to run for uh, election and neither of the senators were able to get the votes they needed. So David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, neither one got over the 50%. So now they have to have a runoff uh, in January, on January 5th. Mm -hmm. So going into next year, we don't know. And then the other, the results of the other races were 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats. So now we're waiting oh, for wow. the races in Georgia. If two de both the, if the two Democratic candidates, uh, Rafael Warnock and John Ossoff, if they win, then it'll be 50-50 in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And our own senator, uh, Kamala Harris, will then be Kamala Harris will then be the vice president yeah. and she'll be the deciding vote. And the Democrats will have basically a blue wave and they'll control the Senate. But if the Republicans win one of the two seats in Georgia or both, then the Republicans will control the Senate. So that kind of affects what's possible next year. So we're, we yeah. we know bipartisanship is going to be critical. And that's one of the good things about the areas where we work, affordable housing, community development, and the like it's always been a bipartisan effort. There's bipartisan support. The bills that get introduced in these areas always have strong bipartisan support. So we'll do well either way, depending upon what happens, because there's such strong bipartisan support. But it definitely makes it a little bit more difficult to predict what will happen next year, because I have one set of predictions. If the Democrats <laughs> control the Senate, I have another set of predictions yeah. uh, if the Republicans control the Senate. But one thing that is for sure is the administration itself, the Biden administration, will have control over regulatory policy. So mm -hmm. there's a lot that can get done on the regulatory policy that is a little bit easier to to know which direction it'll head. It sounds pretty complicated. Um, good thing you have a firm that can advise these uh, different developers on what to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I do enjoy it. Are there certain areas of the country or certain states where it's easier to do do work in affordable housing? Or get affordable housing? Yeah, built. that's a question we get quite a bit. That's a great question. It, developers and others will come to us and say, you know, which state should I go to to make it uh, a little bit uh, easier, a little bit maybe less competitive? Because there is a huge amount of investment that developers and investors have to make in advance of actually getting awards. And obviously, mm -hmm. if you make the investment, don't get an uh, award. You can't do that. You can't make that up in volume. <laughs> You have to get some awards or you're going to end up out of business and not able to serve distressed communities. And 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, there might have been some states that were slightly less competitive. But in this day and age, every state is competitive. Every state has its own unique aspects. And there's no place to really go to to say, you know, there's sort of greater opportunity here or there. Every place you go to, you're going to be dealing with you know, a number of sort of existing developers and the like that are working in that area and effectively serving the those in need of affordable housing in that community.
So there's an, there really isn't an area you can a particular area you can point to and say, you know, this is the place to go. Yeah, it's great. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit. So you, I mean, you run this very large organization. Uh, you're the managing partner. I mean, how one what what is as a managing partner? What does you think is your your role? What is your what is your job description day to day? What do you do? Right, right. <clears throat> <laughs> well, I like to say that I spend about half my time uh, serving clients because that's mm. the sort of most important. Uh, that's what keeps the firm moving, keeps us able to, to do good. Uh, I spend about half my time on the policy front and trying to help educate both you know, members of Congress, the, their staffs, as well as the sort of broader uh, affordable housing community development community. And I spend half my time on firm management. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because, I mean, you run a large organization across the entire country. How, I mean, we've had a, you know, everyone's been working, a lot of people have been working remotely since March. How is it, you know, keeping a culture within the firm, getting people, you know, we spoke before right. offline about training new new uh, new hires. I mean, what what has been the, the biggest difficulties and how have you overcome them uh, in regards to that? Right. No, that, that's a great question. And we started working remote across the firm around March 16th. And we have an office up in Bellevue, Washington. And it was obviously Bellevue was the epicenter at the beginning uh, of mm. the COVID crisis. So we, inst well before our other offices were affected, our Bellevue office was impacted and affected by uh, the coronavirus and by the pandemic. But I will say that as a firm, you know, we had a business continuity group and we we were prepared for any one, two or three offices to suddenly have to work from home. I mean, we're mm. in San Francisco. I mentioned there was an earthquake the day we started business. Yeah, we, we had to be prepared for suddenly to not be able to go into San Francisco for you know indefinite period of times. So we had already had a plan in place to work from home. And then similarly, you know, we have offices in hurricane areas. We have offices where you can have, you know, freezing temperatures and all the rest. So we were mm -hmm. pretty much prepared for any one or two or three office to suddenly have to work from home indefinitely. The greater challenge yeah. here was the entire firm <laughs> had yeah. to work from home. So we did have to, you know, when we saw what was happening in Bellevue, we did have to go through and from a, it was more of a technological issue in terms of getting all the right licenses and the rest in place so we could yeah. operate firm-wide from home. And we did start that on March 16th and been pretty much doing that indefinitely. We have a handful of offices that are at what we call a phase one where they're 10 to 30% occupancy. Uh, but even some of those have scaled back given the more recent uh, rise in uh, cases. But the, so I felt like we were in a pretty good place. And plus we're in a profession and we think our, we're fortunate to be in a profession where you can be pretty effective working from home and we really have a lot of sympathy at the firm for other businesses where that really isn't an option. And when you think mm -hmm. about the, the one thing about the recession associated with the pandemic is it is so uneven. It's yeah. uneven like no other crisis. And we really have a lot of uh, empathy and sympathy for those in other areas where they don't have nearly the opportunity that we have to be able to continue to perform and serve our clients working from home. Yeah, it's the big technology divide now. It's like my uh, my stepmother's a a teacher in uh, in Houston, Texas, and not a not a very affluent area. So like 
you know, my son, I live in the Bay area. I mean, we have internet, we have got, you know, laptops. He's, he's good to go. He's 10, but these kids don't have that stuff. So it's like, how do they get to school? How do they, how do they learn? So it's, it's a whole, and you know, how do they get their, they, they depend on, you know, school lunches to feed them. So it's, it's a whole, it's a whole different thing. Um, so you're definitely fortunate as well in my family and my company as well. Um, right. Well, you are, I mean, you're definitely, I mean, really appreciate your time. You're, you're the go-to guy. You're, you're the, you know, you're the, the face in this, in this space, uh, so to speak. I mean, but I'd like to put you on the hot seat. You ready for the hot seat? I am. Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They've also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR functions. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Looking forward to it. Oh, it's great. Um, besides your newsletters and your, and your reports, any books or reading materials you recommend, whether in the affordable housing space or in real estate or, or business or life or anything like that? Uh, yeah. I, the one thing about the pandemic is it has allowed me to sort of get back onto a a process where I'm trying to read a book a week. Oh, wow. And, and I listened to a podcast that George Raveling spoke, and he's a member of the NBA Hall of Fame, college player, uh, head coach at Villanova, Washington State University and USC. And he actually has what I refer to now as the Raveling method, where he okay. reads four <laughs> books at a time. Okay. And so I kind of looked at that and thought that's really kind of, uh, I could, I could, when I heard that, I was like, that's a great way to do it because you can pick books in different areas and whatever sort of mm-hmm. grabbing you at the moment, uh, you can kind of be reading that book. So the the four books that I uh, am currently in the process of is there's one, AI Superpowers, which is about artificial okay. intelligence and who the superpowers are between, you know, it's about China and the United States, but it's more about artificial intelligence and what that could mean for business and transformation. And that's been really interesting to think through. And obviously, I have a personal interest in knowing how it's going to affect uh, the accounting world, how it's going to affect valuation, appraisals, and all of the rest, as well as affordable housing and the like. So that's been uh, interesting. On the political front, uh, yeah, I'm a political junkie, as you can tell. <laughs> so yeah. I, the man who ran Washington's about James Baker and his years with Reagan and before yeah. and then after with Bush. And then I also, from a sort of personal development, Tools of Titan by Tim Ferriss is something that oh, how is, is that very one? easy reading. And you're probably a fan of that. But then yeah, I'm, I'm that, also, I never he had, he had a podcast. Read, I never I never read the book though. How's the book? It's good. It's very good, and it's 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 very digestible. And it's you basically it's so packed with information. You have to read each particular. It's it's a summary of what he learned from different people that he's interviewed, and each one is really packed and dense. 
So you have to kind of read it in bite-sized pieces and take a moment to think about it and how, what parts of it, you know, fit for you that you can kind of pull into your life. So it's really, uh, it's, it's well worth it. And it, it is long and it's, it's not one that you're going to finish quickly. And if you do finish it quickly, you won't get as much benefit out of going through it slowly and really paying it and thinking about the tools and whatnot to put the tools in your life. <laughs> but another one that I found really interesting is that I'm, I'm in the middle of is the hot hand. Okay. And that just gets to my accounting and, and analytical view. And it's all about whether or not there is such a thing as a hot hand. And a, and there was a, there was a, a professor analyzed whether or not there was a hot hand in the early eighties. And he concluded the concept of a hot hand saying basketball didn't exist. And just, just in the last few years, another uh, a mathematician looked at it and found a fallacy in some of the calculations that were done and concluded that there is a chance. It's not clear because it's not so significant, but that maybe there mm -hmm. is such a thing as a hot hand. But anyways, I found that really interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating because it feels like there is a hot hand, but then I've always heard, yeah, the facts are like it's not, but be kind of cool if, it, if, uh, if there really was a hot hand. And it was also interesting that a paper was written in early 80s and then everyone just took that paper at sort of face value. And I myself always thought there wasn't such a hot hand because of that paper. And then just a few years ago, this new paper came out that said, well, maybe there is. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book has a great part where the the mathematician that wrote the paper, there's two, the two mathematicians that together worked on the paper to maybe disprove the lack of hot hand had to give a presentation in front of the professor who had actually written the earlier paper that said there wasn't one. Oh, really? <laughs> and he ended up agreeing with them that, that there was an oversight in the earlier paper and that their data did show what it says that does show what it shows. As a very humble guy to admit defeat. Um, <laughs> How about, uh, do you listen to podcasts or any really good podcasts on, uh, that, that focus on affordable housing that you listen to by chance? Well, I can't, I figured it wouldn't be right for me to pick my own. And I certainly <laughs> listen to yours, but oh, beyond those you. two, because that's something you're, uh, yeah, why don't you, why don't you plug your own? Know about yours. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you plug your own podcast? Please do. Right. Right. But, uh, no, that's okay. People can just search our website. I have a, a weekly podcast on affordable housing and community development and tax issues and the like. But I, I am a big fan of podcasts and I have podcasts that I think of as help me understand the world. And mm. from that perspective, there's a podcast conversations with Tyler Cowen and there's one econ talk with Russ Roberts and there's one lexicon Valley. And I'd encourage folks who just want to have a, a good entertaining discussion, analytical discussion to listen to those. I also have a number that I listen to related to my business and you know, there mm. are podcasts out there on, you know, a week's changes in the tax law area and the like. And I won't bore your listeners with that. Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, imagining also, myself listening to that. Exactly. Then there's also yeah. ones on on just sort of personal growth. And you mentioned mm -hmm. you're a Tim Ferriss fan. I mean, he has a weekly podcast that I love listening to. And he, yeah. he does great interviews as well, dealing with personal growth and the rest. And, and that's a great way to sort of get away from business and the, the bigger thinking of the understanding the world and more about learning more about yourself in ways you can grow personally. I aspire to be Tim Ferriss in my podcast. Not even <laughs> close though yet. A couple more years. Um, yes, just a few. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, what do you like to do outside of work? So I'm a big sports fan 
And okay. my children are now all out of high school and going mm -hmm. up through high school, I could go to my kids' sports events and I loved it. I, I have uh, two, I have three sons and a daughter uh, and two of the sons and one daughter were very active in sports. So all through their, up until their high school, I was active in their sports and I loved spending weekends with them and working with them and, and all the rest. And uh, one son and one daughter also, uh, one daughter's in college and she is eventually supposed to be playing softball in college. But oh, right really? now there's not a lot of softball in college getting played. Uh, and a center played baseball in college. So I got to go a little bit longer. So I can't spend mm. as much time watching their sports. Uh, and it's going to be a few years before I have grandchildren that I can be watching their sports. So I do <laughs> uh, also watch professional sports. So it'd be like the Bay Area sports teams. I'm a big Giants fan, a big Warriors fan, a big 49ers fan. So it's, uh, I, I love doing that. And then also I love traveling and that's not something I can do I a lot know, of right yeah. now either. So the two things I really enjoy doing, uh, I can't do other than watch on TV. That's why you're on my podcast. Nothing else to do, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, I would be here even if there was something oh, else to do. Even in the game seven of the world series. I appreciate it. I just followed your podcast tax credit Tuesday. I can't believe I didn't follow it before. So, yes. uh, looks great. So I got to take a listen as soon as we get off this. Great. Thank um, you. Now, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? I mean, that's a great question. And there is a Gandhi quote that I really like that says, Lizette, live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. Oh, I like that. And I, you look at that, and you just think, you know, take more chances. I mean, I obviously did take a chance because I, when I started the firm in 1989, when I look back at it now, it seemed like a pretty crazy thing to do. But at the yeah. time, it was something that uh, I just felt compelled to do. So definitely the, you know, take chances in the rest. But the other is invest in yourself. Uh, continue to invest in yourself. So I'm a big believer in investing in yourself and, you know, taking reasonable risks. Uh, don't mm. be afraid of risks. You know, be self-assured, but self-aware, you know, sort of be, com be confident, but cautious. Uh, but, and the other thing is when you're younger, that's the time to take chances. You have time to make it up. It's harder to take chances later in life where you don't have as many years ahead of you to be able to make yeah. up for the chances that you take. Whereas when you're young, you have lots of years ahead. Yeah. We didn't even get into how you started the firm, why you started the firm, but that, that could be another podcast. Okay. There you uh, go. <laughs> I'm sure that's a great story. It is. Um, now, you know, I'm a recruiter. I'm sure there's a lot of people here listening who are interested in maybe getting a new job within affordable housing. What do you look for in hiring people? Maybe not necessarily like the exact technical skill set, but just kind of like what soft skills and maybe hard skills that you look for generally. Well, you know, when we're hiring, you know, for accountants, obviously you have to have accounting, you have to have accounting courses and the rest. There's definitely these sort of threshold sorts of requirements. And then the same thing on evaluation side. Uh, in our evaluation department and, you know, other sort of positions within the firm, there's certain sort of core skills that you need to sort of satisfy, but we're really focused on uh, analytical skills. Once you get past that, it's from an analytical perspective, how well do you analyze problems? Mm. And we're very focused on interacting. And when you work at Novogratic, very much, it's kind of like being in class where you get an assignment from a professor, you have to then go and complete the assignment and then come back and you get graded. And that's sort of, you know, a lot of what we're doing is very project-based, task-based. 
where we can do training and then we'll then you'll get a task you come back and there's that back and forth and we're really looking for sort of the self-starters those with analytical skills uh, and it's a little bit different than you know there's other professions that are very process oriented and it's sort of like we want you to do it this way and don't do anything different right i mean think of like an airline pilot you don't want an yeah. airline pilot. You want them to go through their checklist in the right order. You don't want them to say, I always wanted to try this other thing. <laughs> yeah. But but we're not in that business. We're in the business where it's a very dynamic environment. So that you do have to have very strong analytical skills and you need to want change. You need to embrace change because there's one mm -hmm. thing for sure. There will be change every year, every day, you know, every week. So there's constant change. You need to be embracing that. Good answer. Well, Mike, yeah, I know you're a really busy guy. You are the, the 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 you know the expert in this space, probably in this in this entire country. So, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. So, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor to be on your podcast. <laughs>